Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, help us find encouragement in your word. Christ, let me pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews is considered to be a classic piece of literature, even by people of no faith or people who are not Christian. It is a very complex argument that the writer makes, and it reaches its apex in chapters 11 and 12. Our passage is the first part of chapter 12. Listen for the word of God. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My child, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then You're illegitimate, not as children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not even more be willing to be subject to the Father of spirits and of life? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share his holiness. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields to the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight your paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it may become defiled. 
See to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you think it is sad to hear an ex-athlete talk about the glory days, well, prepare to be sad. I was a senior in college, and I was a pretty good cross-country runner, usually finishing second or third on my team. The best runner on my team that year was a freshman phenom. And during one race, I was entering the last mile. I was shocked to see that I was not only gaining on this guy, but if I kept going like I was going, I was going to pass him with about a quarter of a mile to go. And I couldn't believe it because I'm telling you, he was really good. Now, yes, I was having one of my better races, but it was obvious that he was struggling. I didn't know the guy well. Many cross-country runners are loners, and he was one of those who kept to himself. But though I barely knew him, though we were not friends, I wanted to be a good teammate. So when I caught up with him, I offered him some encouraging words, suggesting to him that I pace him for the rest of the race. I said, stay with me. We'll finish strong. He looked at me and said two words that I can't repeat from this pulpit, but it was clear He did not appreciate my encouragement. At that point, my best self gave way to my worst self. He stopped being a teammate. He became just a freshman again, and I picked up my pace and I dusted him. You know, that last part really didn't need to be in the sermon. I just enjoy telling you that. I guess people are motivated in different ways. I mean, I wasn't like him. I ran my best races when I realized that I wasn't alone, when I realized that there were others who could help me, even if they were runners I was running against, I would always imagine this invisible cord between me and the next runner, a cord that I could use to pull the runner to me until I could pass him, or at least a cord I could use to hang on so I would not be left behind. I think the preacher of Hebrews was a runner. In fact, I think the preacher of Hebrews was a runner like me and not like that rude freshman. I don't have any real evidence to go by except chapter 11, the chapter before the one that I read as our scripture lesson, and the first few verses of chapter 12. With the sermon that is the book of Hebrews, the preacher wants to encourage his congregation. He wants to inspire them to be faithful even when they are tired. He does so by describing one's life as a race, a race not of loners, but of teammates. What he describes is that kind of race where runners absolutely need each other to finish. He describes a relay. Each runner carries the baton that is faith. And not just any faith, but the faith of the patriarchs, the judges, the priests, the prophets of the Hebrew people, and now the faith of the apostles and followers of Jesus. 
And each leg of the race is not a short sprint, but the long race of a lifetime after one has been claimed by God. This is a relay of marathons where the runners might stumble, they might fall, falter, even sometimes get off the trail, but who simply must not stop until their leg of the race is done. The preacher tells his congregation of the runners who have carried the baton of faith before. Just to list a few, by faith, Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Noah built his ark. By faith, Abraham went to the new land that God showed him and trusted God with his son. By faith, Moses stood before Pharaoh as if he had no fear. By faith, Rahab hid the spies of Israel. And the preacher goes into some details about each of those runners telling their stories. But after describing Rahab, the preacher stops telling stories. You see, he is doing what a good preacher does. He is building toward a crescendo. Now just firing off names in the rapid style fire of rap. By faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And then the preacher is moving so fast he stops calling names and starts just throwing out categories of people. Prophets, women, others who suffer for the sake of righteousness. The baton passing from one runner to another, from one generation to the next until the moment when the preacher reminds the congregation that the baton is now in their hands. It's the moment of chapter 12. It is the moment where the preacher comes up on the right side of his congregation and offers them words of encouragement. And he begins with these words. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. The preacher then goes on, and it's a good thing because those words are not enough. Those words, simply by themselves, on their own, they're just cheerleading. It could help. It might help a long-distance runner on the very last leg of the race when the cheers of the crowd can carry a runner to ignore the pain, the, the lungs that are begging for air, and sprint to the end. But this cheering on its own is not enough. In the middle of a race when someone is tired and wondering if he can even finish. Now, we don't know specifically why this congregation is tired because the preacher doesn't say. Scholars guess that this is a Christian congregation, possibly in Jerusalem, made up mostly of Jews who now follow Jesus. And as a minority community, they have to live against the grain, and that's tiring. They have to put up sometimes with being ridiculed, marginalized, and dismissed, sometimes even physically abused. Their temptation sometimes when they're at their tiredest is to, is to just give up, to buy into the cultural notion that really the race is over. They've just simply run too far. They've passed the finish line because there is no other leg of the race that begins with Jesus' resurrection. They're tempted to say, you know, our bad. We don't really buy into that empty grave. Now, again, though, those are just guesses based on reading a book called Hebrews that speaks so much of Jewish forebears. 
and which makes such a point of speaking of finding God in Jesus. Now, while it's disappointing for people like me not to know the specifics of the original congregation, the original context of the writing, we might have an advantage in not knowing those specifics. Because maybe the undefined spiritual weariness of that congregation can find definition in the spiritual weariness we all sometimes feel. And maybe these days more than most days. I'm not going to talk today too much about today's current events, but would you agree that this Jumanji game that is 2020 that we have found ourselves in has not been a nice stretch of downhill running? More like running uphill in sand? I know it has not been all that bad. Sometimes there are many blessings and joys and Probably some extreme introverts have been coasting through 2020 with a smile on their faces. But I bet that there have been some who are like me and laugh a bit too hard when someone says something like, 2020 is a leap year with 29 days in February and 3,000 days in March. And it's been exhausting sometimes. I suggest we listen to Tom Long. In his commentary on Hebrews, he suggested that even without knowing the specifics, it seems the congregation is tired, really. Tired not just in trying to be saints, and tired not because of their life as sinners. What they're tired of is the struggle between the two, the constant warfare that trying to be faithful entails. Another way to say that might be what they're tired of is the struggle between being their best and worst selves. That makes sense on a simple level. I mean, making your bed every night or not making it every night, both are easier than deciding every single day whether or not you're going to make your bed. Going to church every Sunday, never going to church, praying regularly, hardly praying at all, both easier than making the decision every single time. I know I've started talking like a preacher. Since I am talking about a preacher, let me tell you a story about a preacher. A minister friend of mine told this story on himself in a sermon. Even so, to protect him, I'm going to change his name to Tim. Tim used to wear a clerical collar all the time. He said it was more a fashion choice than a professional choice because it saved him the effort of having to decide every single day what he was going to wear. Well, one day he went to visit one of the members of his church in the hospital. And making that visit was so easy. I mean, he loved the member. She loved him. She was glad to have him there for conversation, for prayer. That visit was a great way to end his day on the job. And then while driving home from the hospital, ready to relax at home, he approached a stoplight. He lived in a big city, and this was a busy four-lane street. Someone waiting to pull into the street from a business saw him and saw the cars behind him and didn't want to wait. He screeched out in front of Tim, forcing Tim to slam on his brakes. And then the guy ahead of him looked in his rearview mirror and gave him a little backwards wave as if to say, yeah, I see you, big deal. 
And Kim was furious and expressed his fury with a hand gesture that said what that freshman runner said to me in two words. And with his hand still in the air, Tim suddenly became aware that there was another driver stopped beside him, and he turned and he saw a wide-eyed elderly woman. And in that moment, with his hand still up, Tim realized he was wearing his clerical collar. You know, being his best self on that hospital visit, that was easy. And being his worst self, responding to that rude driver, was easy. Maybe what would have been hard is remembering that he was wearing his collar before making the hand gesture, and then his best and worst selves would have been in conflict, his fury and his calling pulling against each other. I'll use the word. One self would have been in judgment of the other. Of course, you know, preachers are not the only ones who struggle between their best and worst selves. You may have heard it in the news about a CEO of a California software company. I don't know the guy, but I imagine that as a CEO, a successful one, that when he is on the job, it's easy for him to act professionally, especially at board meetings or stockholder meetings, careful about what he says, careful how he says it. But after work, he goes to an outside bar, he drinks too much, he's relaxed, he's tired. Maybe he is sick and tired of having to deal with this coronavirus, and maybe he has some pent-up rage that has been stoked by the voices of these culture wars we're in. And he can't let China have it, but there is in front of him this Asian family having too good a time celebrating a birthday. And so he engages them and makes fun of them, insults and threatens them, gives them that rude gesture, says those two words, and he looks like he's enjoying himself. Easy to be a professional at work. Easy now to be rude in the restaurant. But back it up, what if it occurred to him that the video being recorded by the phone in the hand of one of the family members might soon be seen by his family, by his board members, by his stockholders? Then it would have become a hard moment, this tired man who drank too much, having to make the effort to restrain himself. And maybe that struggle would have saved him the job that he lost the next week. You see, sometimes cheerleading is not enough. Cheerleading is not enough encouragement. Sometimes encouragement has to go beyond. Keep it up to reminding us that we are accountable to think before we speak or write or post. To remember when we think that we are alone, that we are seen by other eyes. That's what the preacher is reminding us in chapter 12. He reminds the congregation that we are never in this world unobserved and unaccountable. First, he says, 
You need to know there's this cloud of witnesses surrounding us. He has this big vision of this life we live in, that those who have come before us are watching us. He says, run the race before you, remembering those who have run before. Abel, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, and the like. They endured so much. They made so many sacrifices. And we owe something to them, don't we? We owe a great deal to them who gave us this faith, who who, who gave us this vision, parents, I would say teachers, friends, mentors, and peers who passed on to me my faith and my wisdom how to live. And by the way, as a preacher, I need to remember those who built up the wonderful churches that I was so privileged to be called to serve. I want you to think about who those people would be for you. Who are those who passed on to you The vision of an elegant kingdom, the vision of a realm where people are treated with dignity, where the weak and vulnerable are helped and protected, and who sometimes remember those people who made a faithful witness at some considerable sacrifice and cost. We can't let them down, the preacher is telling us. And then second, the preacher reminds us the leg of the relay that we are now running, this relay of marathons. Our leg is not the last. There are those who will come one day who will receive the baton. Generations to come, children and grandchildren, not only our own if we have them, but God's own children and grandchildren. For all are children of God. We owe something to them. We owe, we are accountable to future generations. And then third and finally, the preacher reminds us that even though the baton is now in our hands, We are not running this race alone. Jesus is running the race with us. Now, on the one hand, that means that even without people taking videos, that still makes us accountable because we live in the eyes of God. We live in the eyes of Jesus. Morally, ethically, we can't live unseen. If our faith tells us anything, it is that. Jesus may look at us with love and does, but Jesus' eyes have expectations and they are bright with the hope that he might see us grow into the image of our best selves, the image of who we were created to be. But being seen by Jesus means more than we are accountable, subject to discipline, as the writer puts it. It means that we are also encouraged, strengthened, lifted up. Jesus, the preacher says, is running ahead of us. Remember that cord that I imagine attached to the runner ahead of me in races? The preacher is describing that cord when he says, look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross who disregarded the shame and who now is risen among us. Hold on to that cord. Hold on to him. Pull yourself toward him and join your strength to his because he is kind and truthful and loving and gracious. And he demonstrated that he could be kind and truthful and loving and gracious even when he was tempted not to be, even when it was hard to be, even when it came at great cost, even his own life. He'll help you when you are tired to be your best self if you keep your eyes on him. 
Let's remember what is the greatest cause for spiritual exhaustion. It's trying to do it on your own, to live your best life alone, and even more, to live your best life without hope that it's going anywhere. If I can just for a moment go back to 2020 and how difficult I found this year to be, I think it helps us to remember that we are not alone. To know first that there are a lot of people who have gone before us who had it worse. And second, it helps to remember that God can help us do now what he has helped so many do before. Emerge from struggle to strength, from bondage to freedom, from death to new life. With how we live, with the decisions we make, and with the hope we bear, let's hold on. Let's hang in there with the one who leads us to the joy that is set before us all. Let's stay with Jesus and we'll finish strong. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.